Hail and well met, adventurers, and thank you so incredibly much for listening to our podcast, Realms and Nerds. My name is RJ, and before we start the campaign, I have some things I need to go over. I ask that you hold tight, as this intro will be a little bit longer than our usual intros. If this is your first time listening, I'd like to inform you that we have four previous episodes that form the prelude to our main campaign, in which we played different characters in a short dungeon that we found online called the Burial Mound of Gileard Wolf Clan. These episodes, for all intents and purposes, are the first four episodes of the main campaign, but as they are a sort of self-contained story focused on different player characters, we've decided to make this the official first episode. If you haven't listened to them, I would highly recommend going back and listening, as they were very fun to record and add a bit more of the lore to our world and are a nice setup to the events that unfold here. And in case you haven't listened to them, I'll take this time to introduce the five of us on the podcast and the roles we play as we once again failed to introduce ourselves in the session. As I've already mentioned, I'm RJ, and I play our gritty half-elf sorcerer. Bronson is playing our somber drow elf paladin. Ash is our goodwilled dragonborn druid. Brandon is our lovable forest gnome rogue. And Harrison continues to lead our story as the fearless dungeon master. But this time using a story he's crafting himself, with our help, of course, given D&D's nature to be a collaborative storytelling platform, one of the reasons I really love playing it. The campaign that Harrison has been creating for us is being called The Return of Ornan. If you enjoy our podcast, we'd highly recommend subscribing to us and turning on notifications to be the first ones to know when our new episodes are released. And if possible, if you could leave us a review on your podcast service, or if you listen to us through iTunes rating, that would really help us. Or if you listen to the show via YouTube, don't forget to like the video. Don't forget to also share the show with anybody you think would enjoy it. It's one of the most effective ways of getting our listener base to grow. If you'd like to stay up to date on the goings-on of the podcast, we're on several social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Instagram. If you make a post on social media about the show, don't forget to include the hashtag RealmsNerds. That's all one word, RealmsNerds. It helps spread awareness of the show and allows us to easily find and see your wonderful posts and fan art. Just as a heads up, the first episode is practically completely expository, as is the case with many beginnings of shows, which means that there's a bit of role-playing plus some rules and character information throughout the episode, uh, but very little dice-rolling gameplay. It may not be the most interesting to some of you, but it's a necessary evil, we'll say. I promise that there's going to be actual gameplay in the coming episodes. Thank you to our dear friend Kyle for composing the main introductory theme of the podcast. It's a fantastic melody, and we really appreciate you for making it for us. Thank you, listener, for taking the time to listen to our podcast. We really appreciate you. Apologies again for the lengthy introduction. I promise it's not going to be the norm. Now, we invite you to join us as we venture into the realm of the return of Ornan.
story in the seventh age of this world on the southern coast in the dwarven capital of Beacon. Long ago, this capital was the site of a giant dragon's nest until an army of elves assaulted the nest and after a long, drawn-out battle were successful in vanquishing all of the dragons, but their entire nest, through all of the fire of the fight, fused together into a shape that resembled a mountain on the southern coastline. Throughout the years, different kind of races lived in this area. At one point, the men of this world went uh, in and stripped all of the iron out of this mound uh, for use in armor and weapons in their quest to take over the world. And when they were done with it, seeing no more use, they sold it for basically a song to the dwarves, who are master tradesmen. What the dwarves realized that the men didn't is that dragons have an eye for gold. So they dug a little bit deeper into this mountain, past the surface where the men had dug for iron, and found gigantic veins of gold melted by dragon's fire that were fused inside of this entire mountain. So they pulled it out and, using their superior merchant skills, developed the richest empire that this world has ever seen. As a monument to their financial financial success. The entire southern side of the mountain was plated in gold and hammered out in such a way that at night when the fires are lit in the castle in the center, it reflects off of the gold and shines for miles so that everyone knows where the city of Beacon is. Because of the constant trade and the amount of wealth flowing through this city, it has become a very multicultural and multi-species area to live in. Basically, every kind of race, religion, and socioeconomic class has at one point or another come through the city of Beacon. So outside of the walls of the castle and the keep, it has expanded farther out into this giant, almost like a bazaar. Everywhere there are shops and merchants and traders selling different curios and wares from all corners of the world. In this town, slightly outside of this reach of the marketplace, is a giant structure made of whitened bones. You see, what happened is... Years ago, when the elves vanquished the dragons that lived inside of the mound, they threw all of their carcasses into a giant heap and left them there to rot. And rot they did leaving just the bones behind. When the dwarves settled and started their quest for more and more wealth, they also attracted some various religious factions that set up shop. One of them took the bones of these vanquished dragons and fashioned it into a giant house of meditation, prayer, and training. And this is where we find Mikhail. This temple that he was raised in is actually the Temple of Bahamut, who is the dragon god of good and war. 
Mikhail's father was the high priest, so he was to be raised in the height of society and luxury to fill this same role. But fate is a twisted, cruel mistress. The events that forever changed Mikhail's destiny occurred during the night of the Festival of Lights, where all the citizens surrounding this temple would release lanterns onto the sky on the darkest night of the year. And after the ceremony, only an hour before first light, a certain tiefling fire wizard who had three horns and fiery wings, carrying the name Maliaculus, brutally dismembers and disembowels Mikhail's mother, father, and young sister. Mikhail is haunted by the question of why he alone was left alive in his family, not realizing just how much of his memory was blocked out. Some of it was too terrible to remember. Immediately after, the priests of the temple took him in, and they began raising him immediately as a child of the temple, no longer having his own home. And they raised him to be the noble diplomat that he was born to be. But since Bahamut is also a god of war, his studies were not only in the books and scriptures, but also in the combat and art of war. He only left the temple 150 years after dedicated service to Bahamut so that he could find this sorcerer Maliopolis and eradicate the cult. 150 years is longer than their average tiefling lifespan. This is because Maliopolis draws life energies off of his followers in this cult to preserve his unholy existence. Once Mikhail destroys this cult and wipes him from existence, he will be named High Priest in the temple and finally take on his father's role. It's been several years since his departure from the temple, and so far his search has been entirely unsuccessful. 150 years is a long time, and he's having trouble finding anyone who even knows the name of his foe. But any scrap of a lead, any tiniest little splinter of a hope that he can find turns into nothing. And now, after several years, he has been called upon and sent on a mission by the leaders of Beacon. They need his expertise for a special mission. After a journey of several weeks, which involves some asking around and digging through sort of the dark back corners of the world, we have Mikhail finding himself in the eastern wastelands at a town called Rusty Reach. And there, in a rickety shack that bears the name Saloon over it, we find a man in the corner with his feet propped up on the table. And his name is Joan Redson. Joan Redson is a half-elf. He's been a loner since a young age, when his elven mother died in childbirth. And after the first several years of training him to care for himself, his father left him as well. He managed to survive, and as he grew older, vowed to be the kind of father his father never was. He settled down in a small town, became a smith, and fashioned himself this new kind of weapon that had been developing in the world called a six-shooter. He met this woman, married her, human woman named Abigail, and they had a child, William. But unfortunately, around the same time, the town was invaded by a gang of outlaws led by the ruthless slave Blackhorn. The gang robbed, killed, and generally just took over the town. Joan, worried for his family and for the town's safety, banded together with his close friend, Rex Greenrut, and together they undermined the gang and their ploys. Unfortunately, unbeknownst to Joan, Rex ended up meeting with and making a deal to work for Slade. Rex broke into Joan's home, killed Abigail and William, and burned the house down. 
When Jones saw the fire and Rex leaving the scene, he followed Rex back to former Mayor's Manor, which had become Slade's base of operations. Filled with emotions, Jones suddenly found that he was able to tap into the magics of the wild. He entered the lair, taking a sixth shooter, and found he was able to shoot his bullets and fuse with magic. He saw Slade congratulating Rex and, with a tear, aimed and fired two bullets. One into Slade that ripped through his body with the power of a magic missile, and one into Rex. The bullet infused with the power of ice turned Rex into ice upon initial impact and, upon exiting, shattered the ice corpse. Joan then returned to the remains of his home, where he found the bodies of his wife and son, buried them in the hills nearby. He also found in the wreckage two of his son's toy soldiers. He now carries two soldiers with him as a reminder of his family and the broken trust. He travels around, going town to town, taking down criminals, oppressors, enslavers, outlaws, and the like that plague the lives of the common folk. He never stays in one place longer than necessary, however, only stopping to rest at inns and taverns, visit bars, saloons, and dives, and to fight any evil found there. So as Mikhail sits in this saloon with Joan and listens to his story, he then starts to weave a story of his own that he knows about this group that killed your family, a group by the name of the Fist, that his town has no love of these men either, and that there the stories of some of your exploits against them have become known, and that he's been dispatched to bring you along on a new mission of urgent importance that he's been dispatched on. As Joan agrees to come along and fight this new evil, they set out again, this time heading north into the mountain range known as the Teeth. And there, in the shadow of the icy mountains, they find a small cabin secluded in the woods. And living there, they find a man named Ramash. As a dragonborn youngling, Ramash's family lived in the wilds. They made a simple living, enjoying nature, enjoying life. And one day when Ramash was three, as they were traveling along cliffside, they came across a band of skeletons. Skeletons are raised by a magician or a wizard or some magic wielder, usually controlled by them. But there was no one controlling these skeletons, and thus they were just rampaging across the land, destroying wherever they came across. They brutally murdered his parents the only family he had, and as he was attempting to escape from them, they sliced open a gash across his right eye, and in doing so, knocked him off a cliff. And he was half dead at the base of it when he was found by a human man named Og. He was a druid, and he used his powers to heal Ramash, to bring him back from being half dead. He took him under his wing, and he raised him in the wilds that he already was familiar with, and he showed him the ways of being a druid of caring for nature, caring for the wild. He taught him how skeletons and the undead were unnatural, how they are based in evil, and Ramash, who already hated the undead for killing his family, made it his life's purpose to combat the undead and support life wherever he can, both nature and in societies of sentient beings. And his hope, his goal in life, is to try and bring nature and people together, have them live in harmony rather than fight each other. That's the basis of his being right now, his goal, his purpose in life. And he uses all the magic he learned as a druid thus far to fight this cause.
As these two companions come upon your cabin, it does not take much convincing for you to realize that this new mission that has been presented will involve a lot of dealing with the undead and all that is evil in this world. And so quickly, as well, Ramash is also on board and ready to go. As you now journey south, heading back towards Beacon, the group passes through the White Timber Forest. In the center of this forest, there is a town called Timber's Crest. After a little bit of bribing and a little bit of asking around, they are able to get some directions in Timber's Crest that sends them deep into the woods. And after much searching and scouring around, they are able to come across a small forest gnome. And his name is Sibo. Sibo Allen Zook Jebs Wren of the Turen clan grew up like any other forest gnome. Had loving parents, loving siblings, all 12 of them. Loved to enjoy the forest, always up to mischief like any gnome would be. And at a very young age, Sibo learned how to play the viola. And he loved to play music for people and bring joy into the world. And soon, when he was very young, he left home to go play music for the world, yeah, with a band of his own, going from town to town, playing music, living just as any gnome would, just scrounging by, but enough to live a good life. But being a gnome and being very mischievous, uh, Sibo soon found that he loved to take what wasn't his, to bring a little bit of uh, mischief into the world. And soon he also, along with playing his music, found joy in stealing from others, pickpocketing, burglary. It was never malicious intent, it was always just a way of him releasing a little bit of his mischievous side, just to have fun. And soon he left his band just to search the world and to steal. He found so much joy in it, but it was never for the wealth. In fact, he found that he enjoyed spending his money on those who needed it most. Taking from people who maybe had a little too much and giving it to the people who had not quite enough. But he made a lot of enemies. He also had taste for anybody with a pretty face. Going from inn to inn, he always seemed to find the hottest blonde or the sexiest brunette and uh, got into a lot of trouble with the townspeople, with fathers, with those he stole from, and so he had to learn the way of the knife and of the bow and of the sword in order to protect himself. He never tried to hurt anyone, but when it came to fighting, it was a deadly force that he didn't want to be messed with. So Mikhail is somewhat put off by the mischievous and criminal nature of this forest gnome. However, Mikhail is aware that this mission that he's embarking on will need another companion who's a skilled fighter and one who has a knack for getting his hands on things that other people want to protect. So now this band of four continues on south back to the city of Beacon where they find themselves in the Golden Pub which sits right on the outskirts of the Wall of the Keep. 
inside of Beacon. And so now, before we get any farther, I'd like to go around. We did backstories, but I'd like to talk specifically about what kind of class you're playing and weaponry and stuff like that. Now that we've got everybody assembled and we've done the narrative, kind of the nitty-gritty, uh, I don't necessarily need, like... <laughs> What's your deception? <laughs> yeah, your deception and your AC and all that kind of stuff, but just, like, basically anything we need to know to get to know the kind of the guts of your character. I, I know everything about me, so... I'm a druid, obviously. Um, I'm mostly magic, a magic-based user, kind of like the sorcerer. My HP is 11. I have one weapon besides my breath weapon, which, by the way, is fire-based. I'm a brass dragonborn, so my breath weapon is fire, and I have resistance to fire. My weapon is a scimitar, and I carry a shield, a wooden shield with me. And by the way, druids will never wear or use metal armor or shields. It's a given in the class. Okay. My personality traits, I have a lesson for every situation, which I draw from observing nature. My ideal is the natural world is more important than all the constructs of civilization. My bonds is an injury to the unspoiled wilderness of my home is an injury to me. And my flaw is I remember every insult I've ever received and nurse a silent resentment toward anyone who's ever wronged me. All right. Sibo is a rogue. Forest gnome with a background in being an entertainer. HP is 10, carries a few weapons with him. He has his rapier, a short bow, and then he carries two daggers on him. His personality trait is that no one can really stay angry at him for too long. He has a way of not necessarily tricking people, but they seem to just more or less like him. He puts them at ease. Yeah. Um, his ideal is that he performs for the joy of it and bringing joy to others, but, I mean, also for the money. His bond is his instrument. It's his most prized possession. And But his flaw is that he's a sucker for a pretty face. All right. Joan Redson is a half-elf sorcerer. Folk hero background, lawful neutral alignment. Personality trait, if someone is in trouble, always ready to lend help. Thinking is for others, I prefer action. His ideals is freedom. Tyrants must not be allowed to oppress the people. His bonds is that, or I guess my bonds, I will protect those who cannot protect themselves. My flaw is I have trouble trusting my allies. He's got two daggers, and then he has his revolver, which is a little bit complicated. His six-shooter revolver is based on the light crossbow stats, minus the two-handed property, uh, and also cannot recover ammo. The loading only applies for every six turns as it is a six-shooter. Uh, it's also my arcane focus for my spellcasting because the gun can also be used for casting my spells. However, dry firing, so shooting, casting a spell through the revolver without a bullet to uh, carry the power of the magic, uh, will result in a roll against Harrison for uh, the Wild Magic Surge effect, which is part of one of my features. It's a really interesting thing. Uh, if he wins the roll, the effect definitely happens, and what effect happens is his choice. If I win the roll, I, like normal, will roll to see if the effect happens, and... Yeah, so basically, this is essentially a custom weapon that we've created here. So, the idea is that his magic comes from... The wild. It's, yeah, it's, it's wild magic. It comes from the wild. So, because of that, he's not always completely in control of it. So, he uses the six-shooter as a conduit, as a way to kind of funnel, like, magic. Wand. Yes. Yes. Speaking exactly. of which, I forgot to mention, I have a druidic focus, and that is a wand made of ash. 
Okay. Throw so, it out there. I have to use a wand to cast magic. All right. So the way that the wild magic works is that sometimes there are consequences to using the magic that will happen. So he's using his six-shooter that he's got both as a damage weapon and to channel his magic. So like he said, if he uses his six-shooter to try and cast a spell, if he has no bullet to channel the magic, then there's a 100% chance that he's going to have one of the effects of the... Well, I have to roll against you. Either way, there is a... There... Oh, 100% chance yes. of at Either least way... a chance. Either way, something is going to happen. If I win the roll, then I get to pick off the list which effect I want to happen. And if he wins I have the to roll, roll to see if the wild magic surge happens, like a nor- which is like a normal roll in the game to see if the wild magic is going to affect him. I just kind of wanted to give yeah. a basic yeah. overview of how this weapon is going to work. So it's pretty evenly balanced. It can bounce back and hit him, or it can help him. Yeah, I'm yes, good there are a lot of different. There's very interesting effects that can happen through wild magic. Surge. We will figure it out yeah. when we get there. I don't need to tap. I'm it's not going to tell you. It's pretty damn intricate. <laughs> it's it's yes, great. It's, it is intricate, and that's what I love about it. Mikhail is a paladin. The entire temple that he was a part of was only dark elves. He is a drow. So therefore, like a holy knight or a blessed knight, a servant of the Baha- god Bahamut. Therefore, his background is, uh, I guess it would be alkalite. Due to his immersion in his faith in Bahamut, he sees omens in every action and how the gods try to speak to him. He just needs to listen. He is also extremely intolerant of other faiths or the worship of other gods. He sees Bahamut as the only path through fury on the battlefield, and a practice of good faith. He is, seeks to improve himself worthy of his, fav- his God's favor by matching his actions against the teachings, and he feels that he owes his life to the priests who took him in when his parents died. He is suspicious of all strangers and expects the worst of almost everybody upon meeting them just because he has been so traumatized as a young, young elf. All right. He carries a rapier and a shimmering light hammer. A, he also carries a shield, which he almost always carries with him before entering into combat. Almost always at the ready. All right. Anybody else have anything to add? Oh, yeah, where his name comes from, because that's I want to mention where that came from. So the name Joan Redson, for my creating it, it's really good, because I was trying to uh, kind of reference John Wayne and Clint Eastwood, but like having Joan is similar to John, and then Redson is kind of like that same kind of... The syllables are the same, it also kind of has the a descriptor, and now I don't know, but Redson was based on Eastwood. And then the Joan part, having to be kind of a feminine name, specifically based on the Shel Silverstein song, uh, The Boy Named soup made famous by Johnny Cash, which was just like a very good thing. See, the thing is that nobody cares. <laughs> I care. Uh, uh, he cares, and he's the one editing the podcast. I was gonna be in the It'll podcast. Probably so gonna make okay, the I'm gonna throw out there the languages I can speak, just so everyone knows. I can oh, yeah. Just because. Draconic, common, druidic, so if I'm in our druid, you guys are not gonna be able to know what we're talking about, and elvish. So don't try to pull that shit on me. I mean, I know common, elvish, and dwarvish. Yeah, Mikhail, because he is a follower of Bahamut, also knows Draconic, and he learned Infernal so he could understand anything coming out of Maliaculus's mouth. 
and therefore counter him in debate. I assume he's elvish as well. Yes, <laughs> naturally. <laughs> well, and common. No, he doesn't and understand. That. No, he got hit on the head and forgot <laughs> elvish. Sibo <laughs> uh, speaks common and Nomesh Also knows how to read and write those. And then we have conversations with his travel. I mean, he dabbles in all languages. He understands every language, like basically, or like most common languages. But is that that he can understand them, but he can't speak them? Well, I mean, like, those other ones? it's kind of just, like, he understands, like, the gist of what people are saying. Okay, language. gotcha. Because he's been, like, he entertains He's people. a world traveler. He moves around so much, yeah. you know. I, mean, my like, I get your feel, bro. <laughs> I understand what you're saying, man. I roam around, but I still don't know jack shit. I'm, get, three. I'm getting their vibes, dude. Bro, <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, get you. All right, I think we're good to go. All right. So, Mikael has brought you to this place, the Golden Pub, and you are awaiting a person that's going to meet with you and tell you what more specifically what this is all about. And uh, so, what are you guys doing while you're passing the time? Mikael sits there. Very, very slowly sipping mead. Uh, we're talking about a sip every half hour, but he is immersed in his prayers. Okay. Ramash has a mug of mulled mead, but he's just taking it slow, because he knows he has to stay attentive for whenever this guy arrives. By the way, the mead they make here is called Golden Elixir. Well, Sibo's uh, drinking. It's a little tipsy. Uh, I mean, he's only 3'6", so there's not a whole uh, lot of body mass to, uh... Fucking lightweight. <laughs> you know... Take the alcohol. But, I mean, like, he's having fun. Playing his viola for some people. Maybe pickpocketing at a couple people. It's just a casual night. Jones sits quietly at a separate table, close by, but uh, sitting alone, as he prefers it. He's on his second one of these uh, meads. Not trying to show off. He's just sitting. This is very different from <laughs> our last All adventure. Right. So I'm going to need Sibo. Uh, Can you throw me a quick perception check? Or I guess not a perception check, but a uh, uh, sleight of hand. 18. You were pretty successfully getting away with your pickpocketing. Uh, Mikhail, can you throw me a perception check? Six. You do not see what Sibo is up to vis-a-vis his pickpocketing ways. So he's he's getting away with it for now. He's stealing some money from some people. So as you kind of sit here and all of this is going on, a man walks in with, like, silver-gray hair... He's a human man. He's very tall. He's about 6'4". He's wearing a set of what I would call officer's armor. So not really heavy front lines armor, but definitely not ceremonial armor either. This is functional armor embossed with all kinds of gold and um, just different intricate designs. And he's wearing a cape that... The front side of it is black, but on the underside, as he walks and it flows behind him, shimmers with golden thread. As he walks up, Mikael recognizes him as Captain Artemis of the Golden Guard. So, as we have introduced him now, I want to take a quick detour to talk about this here. So, as we go forward and talk about different areas with different people. There are going to be different factions that exist within this world, and interaction with them will go differently based on, you know, what they are kind of all about and things you've done in the past and stuff like that. 
So we've actually already seen two of the factions so far, so I just want to take a quick moment to talk about them. So basically, the deal with these factions is I'm going to give you a couple of points about them right now, and as you go along and interact with people from these factions and meet them and learn more about them, some things might get added to this list, or you might internally add things to the list on yourself just as you kind of interact with these guys. So we've met two so far. The first one is the fist. So the fist, they consider themselves to be a frontier justice group, but that justice is in a hard quotations. More or less, they are seeking to take control of areas in the eastern wasteland. They want to kind of control that area. So what they would call justice, most people would call being strong-armed thugs. So because of that, kind of one of their defining things is they do more or less believe in what they're doing. Even though they do it with quite unscrupulous means, they do have a certain conviction that what they're doing is the way they should go about things. Kind of like a might makes right kind of group. Right, yes. So, to become an official member of the Fist is very hard, but once you become a member, you are sworn to lifetime membership. If you try to leave or walk away, you are killed. But then on the other hand, you have to do something very, very unforgivable to be kicked out of this group. More often than not, they just would kill you, but, you know, it is a lifetime membership. They are fairly well organized, especially for an area like the Wasteland, where there's not a lot of formal government going on. They're actually a pretty well organized network. One of their flaws is that sometimes they overreach. They try to grab too much territory on occasion when they haven't fully thought out a plan. And as far as their interactions with other factions, they will immediately dislike any faction that they perceive as moving in on their territory. And the second faction that we have now just run into is the Golden Guard. The Golden Guard are completely loyal to Beacon. Overall, they are the most skilled fighting force in the South, with several of their members being considered some of the best fighters in the entire world. A flaw of theirs is that although many of them have lived in Beacon for generations and are loyal in the Dwarven leader's quest to build the best army, they have also resorted to hiring in some talent. And so some of the members can be swayed with a bribe because they're mercenaries, they're in it for the money. However, you do have to remember that they work for some of the richest men in the world. And so it would have to be a very hefty bribe to get them to move off of their morals. As a whole, the Golden Guard have an extreme dislike for the Fist. They are a very organized form of government, and this sort of lawless pseudo-government strong arm that they see going on in the Wasteland, they have an extreme dislike for. And how far away from Beacon are we? You are in Beacon. Oh, sorry, that's where we went back. Well, You're actually... It's called the Golden on whatever. Yeah. The Golden Bar. The Golden Bar. You should have needed the Golden, the golden Bar. What a missed opportunity. <laughs> Yeah, it's called the Golden Pub. I was trying to avoid being too punny with the naming. Why? No, it's great. <laughs> but they want good business. They would have named it that for the pun. Think about it. 
I mean, anyway. And so again, like I said, especially as you meet more factions, if they have interactions with the other factions you've previously met, those will show up on the list of traits. As I said, right now I just kind of told you about the interactions yeah, between they don't like the, the fist. fist and the Golden Guard because they're the only ones you know so far. Yep. So, yeah, so this tall human man... Is Artemis a member of the faction? Yes. Part of the Ar- Golden Ar- Guard. Artem- his name is Captain Artemis and he is a member of the Golden Guard. Okay. So, think, I mean, this guy is probably mid to late 40s. <laughs> he definitely looks like... What race like- is he? He's a, a human. He looks like he has seen quite a few battle campaigns. Even though he is very richly dressed and has a very regal air to him, you can tell that none of this is just for show. It has a lot of fashion to it, but it is also completely functional. He's the kind of man that would not feel comfortable in ceremonial armor. So he walks up and immediately addresses Mikhail. He says, Mikhail... I see that your quest has been successful. Did you mean in gaining a group of followers or a squad? Then yes. I've put together a team. What of it? Well, I have some troubling news. Come with me. And with that, he ushers you towards the back of this inn, and you actually go in through a part that looks sort of like a server's entrance, and at a stone wall, he pauses for a moment and says, Now, before we go any further, I must ask all of you to maintain the highest level of secrecy about everything you will see here. Are we in agreement? Lips to see up, love. Of course. Seems fair. You already know I bear secrets well. And so with that, he reaches out his left hand, and on the index finger of his hand, he has a ring that bears a very unusual crest. None of you really recognize it. But as he presses it against the wall, a section of the wall actually just phases out of existence. And behind it, you can see a passageway. He says, quickly, and and you all file on into this passageway. And as he passes through, this wall... uh, rematerializes, and you are now sealed into a room with no perceivable windows or doors. So inside of this room, there is actually a plain table with several chairs arranged around it, about a dozen chairs, and in the center of it is a map of the world. Captain Artemis motions for you to take seats around this table, and he himself actually is standing. He sort of pulls a chair out of the way, but he's going to stand there next to the table. Y'all expecting more company? No, this is a secret chamber for the captains of the Golden Guard. We are actually currently inside of the walls of the keep. But this room is completely secure. It's been warded against any kind of magical spell, so we can speak freely in here. Inside the walls of the keep, you say? What kind of things are you keeping in here? Mikael, are you sure that we can trust this one? I've been keeping a strong eye on him. He is useful to our end means, regardless of this odorous presence about him. Also, he's quite drunk, if you didn't notice. (laughs) Quite drunk? I had one mate. Oh, I've been in my fair share of victory celebrations. I am well aware of his state of intoxication. No matter, we uh, will not be needing him to be particularly sober for this first part. 
So, gentlemen, before we talk about your mission at hand, I must give you a short history lesson to make sure that we're all on the same page. Long ago, in the Third Age, the men of this world fought a desperate battle against the most powerful sorcerer that this world has ever seen, a dark magic user by the name of Ornan. Through means of unknown might, these men, at great personal cost, were able to slay this dark sorcerer, or so they thought. Ages passed, and just recently, something started to stir. Our scholars have been working day and night to figure out why the North seemed so restless. And then, Mikael, this happened a mere week before I dispatched you. Something quite terrible happened. In a burrow near the town of Wolfshold, a loud explosion was heard, and the explorers that exited told a terrible tale. They had unleashed the Lich of Ornon. How the men of old could have been so blinded and not realized that their opponent had not truly been vanquished, we do not know. I assume you arrested these adventurers immediately. They were taken by the Wolf Clan to their base high in the mountains called the Fang. There they will be held until we can decide what to do with them. Of course, the Wolf's Clan would like to execute them immediately for bringing this great evil upon the land. However, my emissaries were able to convince them to hold them for now, as at some time they might be useful to us. Where do we come into this story? Well, sir, I was wondering if you in particular might be able to shed any light on the situation, as I understand this happened not a mere 30 miles away from where you were residing. I was unaware of this event. I live quite isolated, actually. I understand. What'd you say next to Wolf's Hoat, a burrow? Correct. Me grandpappy lives in a burrow next to Wolf's Hoat. I wonder if he knows anything. Uh, this was not a livable burrow. This was a burial mound, as it were. Well, I live in a burrow. You tell me I live in a burial mound. Oh, dear. If he keeps annoying you, I can shake him from his toes in the air. Where do we fit into all this? Well, sir, one thing that the incredibly inept adventurers were able to tell us about the uh, goings-on underground was that when Ornan fled the burrow, he carried in his possession a silver deck. Now, my scholars have been looking into this for the many months that Mikhail has been out collecting you all, and they have come to a conclusion. The Dark Elves of old were able to use silver to channel magical energy. We think that right before he was vanquished, Ornan poured his life energy into several silver objects, which then allowed him to survive all of these years and now return as a lich. Well, if it's silver you're looking for, I can find that for you. I'm counting on it. Uh, it sounds unnatural in nature. I don't like it. Indeed, it is unnatural and very disturbing. However, we have learned of a man who has surrounded himself with evil creatures and lives deep in a wasteland that might be known to you, the wasteland of the Garden of Stone. Inside of this Garden of Stone, this man is said to wield a silver ring which grants him unnatural life and also unnatural magical abilities. 
We believe that this ring may be one of the silver pieces that Ornan poured his life spirit into. So you're wanting us to go retrieve this ring? That would be preferable, yes. Amen. What do y'all plan to do with this ring when we return? To be truthful, I do not know. Clearly, we cannot allow such a powerful artifact to be in the hands of evildoers. However, it is unclear if we will be able to destroy it. Once you recover this item, we will have to examine it to figure out what can be done about it. Do you think destroying them will kill Ordon? We do not know. However, anything we can do to limit his power must be attempted. He has started to gather an army to him. Where he is currently hiding is unknown, but there is reports from all over. My spies report back in, and they tell me that evil has begun to leave. Not flee, but leave, like they are being rallied somewhere. We must find where these evildoers are going, and limit their power. All those who extend their lives beyond natural means are only delaying Bahamut's judgment. As the sword of Bahamut, I will gladly pass judgment in this evildoer. I am much liking this uncertainty in what we're doing with those there silver objects afterward, but it seems like this level of evil is too much to be left unkept. You can count me it. I agree, Joan. He is being horribly cryptic. Mikhail, there is something... I haven't told you yet, and honestly, I hesitate to tell you, but I feel that I must. Shortly after the events of Ornan's raising, the men of Wolfshold reported seeing a strange creature, a creature that seemed to trail fire behind him and bore three horns upon his head. I fear this may be the creature that you seek. You tempt me with information. I already agree. It would appear that he as well has thrown his lot in with Ornan, which makes Ornan even more dangerous than he already would have been. I am sorry that I cannot give you any more information about the nature of these objects. As you know, I am simply a soldier of the guard, and although I have been all over this world, I know little of the magical workings that go on. At this point, you will have to choose whether or not you trust me. I bear no ill will towards you, and I would benefit nothing from allowing this world to slip further into chaos. I simply want to see this magical item recovered so that we can attempt to restore order. Anything to destroy this evil that is entering the world, I'm in. Well, Polly, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't care much for this magic sorts, and honestly, I've never been one for uh, going around and stopping evil, but these three suckers look like they need someone to cheer them up, and uh, I think it'll be fun. So as long as you can get me another maid, how many? Oh, my sticky-fingered friend. I can get you much more than mead. If you are successful, you will be a hero of Beacon. And as you know, the leaders of Beacon happen to be the richest men in the world. Well, trust me, I know the richest men in the world. I am sure that upon your successful return, they will be most thankful and most generous. Could we add forgiveness to that list? Shrewd merchants often have long memories. I cannot promise you that my masters will be forgiveful. However, minor slights may be forgiven. Well, all right then. Well then, gentlemen, it is settled. It would appear that you need to get a good night's rest, and tomorrow meet me in the castle to begin your quest. Mm -hmm.